And he said to Peter and Andrew, James and John, follow me and you will fish for people. Please be seated. If you've ever taken a taxi in New York City, you may have noticed a raised shield about six or eight inches on the body of the car. That's called the taxi medallion, and it is essentially the right to operate a cab in New York City. They have them in other cities. I don't know if they do that in Cleveland here, here or not. Taxis are a regulated industry in New York City. No big surprise there, right? And in order to own a cab, you have to first purchase a medallion. Would anybody care to guess what the current value of a taxi medallion is in New York City? Throw it out. What's that? 20,000. 50,000. 100,000. How do I have I do I hear 120? Do I 100? The current value of a taxi medallion is $167,000. It it has been as high as a million dollars about seven or eight years ago. It dipped a little lower than where it is today. Now it's currently uh, what it is. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money even for New York City. Well, think of every cab on the street there as a small business of one or two owners who have gone in together in it, or perhaps it's part of a fleet and a, and a larger company has it. My own father drove a cab in New York City when he was working his way through college and grad school. I don't think we ever had a medallion. Uh, I, I think he was probably a part of a, a fleet employee there. But for someone starting out, oftentimes an immigrant, a taxicab medallion is a significant investment in something that not only pays the bills, but will help to point that driver, that owner, that entrepreneur towards a brighter future. Some scholars suggest that Peter and Andrew and James and John, who we all know were fishermen before Jesus showed up and called them to follow him, may not have been so different from those New York City taxicab drivers. Remember for a moment that this was Galilee, where Jesus had just arrived, and that Galilee was both a part of the land promised to, to God's people, but it was also a land that in that moment was occupied by the Roman Empire. So this was a part of the promised land, but the promise had clearly not yet worked out. The fishermen may have been thinking about all that, but probably they were just thinking about the, the daily work of fishing, about how hard it is to get a good catch, about how, how dangerous it can be. But looking at the wider history, Warren Carter writes that these sets of brothers were likely under contract with the Roman Empire and would have purchased a lease or contract with Rome's agents that allows them to fish and obligates them to supply a certain quantity 
of fish. So they may not have been simply folks with a family business who, who cast out to sea to pick up some fish. They may well have been a part of a very complex and bureaucratic economy. They may well have had something like that medallion on the side of their boats, something which allowed them an income, but something also which cost them dearly while binding them to a system of control. Imagine what it meant then that these men turn away and follow Jesus. Imagine what it meant for them to choose to walk away from income, from stability, from social mobility, from empire in order to live towards that reality of the promised land, which, as we now see, was not a land at all. And Jesus' invitation to them, it doesn't, he doesn't talk about any of that stuff. What he talks about is repentance. Repentance. That's what the fishermen heard. Jesus was talking, speaking as a prophet. So that would have sounded familiar. Let's return to the spirit of God's law, he said, a law not based on judgment, but on fidelity and love. Repent. Repent means to turn. It means to turn away from all those ways that corrode our relationship with God, that tarnish God's image in us and in our neighbors. It means turning towards right relationship with God. And, and yet it is not as heavy a word as it sounds because repentance actually assumes our goodness. It assumes love as the essence of who we are, as the very essence of how God calls us to live. And so repentance here is not heavy but hopeful. We all know the pain that our world is going through right now. But we just can't skip to the brave new world without actively turning away from the one that we are enmeshed in now. I don't mean just disengaging. Which, which you can do without repentance. That's called ghosting. But I, but I do mean differentiating. I mean engaging the world, but from a place of profound love, which absolutely requires repentance. We desire racial healing, but we cannot have reconciliation without repentance. We desire the healing of the earth, but we cannot have replenishment without repentance. And as anyone who has ever loved someone who cannot say they're sorry knows, you can't have real relationship without repentance either. I know we think of that as such a heavy word, but, but in reality, repentance is simply a part of life. It's a part of real life in which the act of turning is simply how we continue to grow. 
When Jesus calls those first disciples, though, they, they aren't repenting per se, but they certainly do make a sharp turn. Warren Carter continues, By choosing Jesus, the brothers choose God's rule over Rome. Rome wanted the men to catch fish to advance their imperialist expansion. Jesus wants them to catch people for God. But think for a moment. Think for a moment about what that meant giving up. There was great cost here. This, this was the New York City cab driver pulling his car to the cab with the medallion on the side of the car that would have been uh, all the wealth he and his family had in the world and simply walking away. That's the scion of a wealthy family, St. Francis. Walking away from wealth and warfare to what? To love and serve the poor. That's anyone who has ever answered Jesus' call by decoupling their lives from the promises of empire and setting their whole trust on God's promises. And that is the hardest turn we will ever make. Will you come and follow me if I but call your name? Will you go where you don't know and never be the same? Will you risk the hostile stare? Should your life attract or scare? Will you let me answer prayer in you and you in me? Following Jesus is hard. It's hard. It's profound. It's life-changing. It's what the world needs. But it also means giving up everything we know and everything we depend upon. It means turning from places of comfort and security and stability and mobility and giving it all up, not for promises of success, but for uncertainty, for, for hostile stares. And, and I won't sugarcoat it, for a life of constant change. Are, are we ready for that? Have we signed up for that? That lovely song from Iona asks, Will you go where you don't know and never be the same? I mean, that's both glorious and frightening on this, at the same time. It's glorious because it means our lives are about transformation of changing into the likeness of God. But it's also scary to think that we'll never be the same as we are in this moment. But think about this. What if, what if will you go where you don't know and never be the same actually means never being the same from one day to the next. That yes, you'll follow Jesus, but this is a daily routine of not sameness. That the identity you settle into on Tuesday will begin to stretch a little bit by Wednesday, and by Thursday you're coming up with a whole new plan altogether, and that this is actually what following Jesus is about. That's hard. That's hard. 
that's hard because we hunger for places of stability. We, we want, hard as fishing can be, it's a life that we know. And it's hard to walk away and not know that the next thing we land on will give us that next security. But in fact, we are called to turn towards, uh, to turn towards the wild uncertainty of God's reign. Keep turning. All that turning, all that repentance, that, does it ever get us anywhere? Most taxi cab drivers will tell you that if you just take a whole bunch of left turns, where are you? Same place. You're not going anywhere. Does this get us anywhere? Well, well, I believe that it does. So if you'll permit me an old school idea of, of heaven as being up in the sky. I mean, it's not, but you get the idea, right? Let's wor work with me on this. If we imagine our lives, our return to God, not as a rocket fired straight up into the heavens. I know we wish it was, but life just doesn't work that way. But rather, as a soaring bird, ascending not directly, but with a series of turns and spirals through which it moves steadily up and upwards towards the heavens. That's the image of turning and repenting and changing and moving through this daily, weekly, yearly, throughout our lives. That's the image of repenting and even changing. To live is to turn. And, the, and faith means following those changes and chances as if they are the very air currents that surround us. Suddenly it doesn't matter if it's a trade wind or if it's turbulence. It's all something that moves us piece by piece and movement by movement ever closer to the heart of God. Lord, your summons echoes true when you but call my name. Let me turn and follow you and never be the same. In your company I'll go where your love and footsteps show. Thus I'll move and live and grow in you and you in me.